Hi, I'm Josh Hammond. I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Ben Weingarten. And I'm Rachel Bovard. And this is NatCon Squad, where common sense and common good meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. So Merry Christmas. Happy New Year, everyone. We are back from our respite. We hope that you enjoyed your, your family time for the holidays to the extent that the bureaucrats of the CDC allowed such gatherings, of course. Um, we have obviously a very well-rounded show for you today. As always, we're starting off the new year with a bang. So Ben is going to kick us off by talking about his most recent column for Newsweek on the year of the ruling class crackdown on dissent. We will then hand it over to Rachel to talk about the Twitter, Twitter ban of Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene and where the future of kind of the big tech fight in Congress is heading. Emily will then talk about making PPE here in the good old US of A, supply chains, reshoring, and all of that good stuff. And then I'm gonna close it out with a bit of a foreign policy segment. So we've got a very well-rounded show, but let's kick it off with you, Ben. Thanks, Josh, and uh, happy 2022 to all. And I'll start with a retrospective uh, with respect to what I think is sort of the overarching legacy of 2021, and I'll bridge it to 2022, since during this week, of course, we have the anniversary of January 6th, uh, which loomed over all that transpired really in 2021, and I think is poised to loom over much of 2022 as well. So in this column for Newsweek that Josh alluded to, I basically talk about the fact that if 2020 was the year of the lockdown, 2021 was the year of the crackdown, on dissent from ruling class orthodoxy. And in the piece, I talk about sort of three major areas that were completely verboten in terms of daring to in any way hew away from the ruling class's orthodoxy. And those three things were on the integrity of the 2020 election, number one. Uh, obviously you're an insurrectionist uh, and or something worse to the extent you dare have any questions about that election, which of course has bearing on 2022, as I'll get to briefly and momentarily. Number two being COVID on any of a number of areas associated with COVID to the extent that you challenged orthodoxy. Of course, you became a super spreader of misinformation, uh, if not a potential mass murderer. And lastly, of course, critical race theory, the regime's chosen ideology uh, to the extent you challenged CRT, you were of course a racist, a bigot, and might have the FBI sicked on you. And, and I think the real point in all three of these buckets is that election integrity comes to the legitimacy of the ruling class and its leader from 2020 and beyond. So daring to challenge uh, its favored election integrity ungluing policies uh, makes you a threat to the ruling class's political power. Uh, with respect to COVID, of course, it's power over every aspect of your, our lives. So you become a threat to public health and, and daring to threaten, uh, of course, then threatens the policies uh, of suspending our natural rights, whole slew of rights, uh, arbitrarily, capriciously, and for months on end, unendingly. Uh, and then, of course, again, CRT being the ruling class's favorite ideology, you can't challenge that. There, you'd be challenging the kind of monopoly on the narrative about American history and all the policies that ought to flow uh, from addressing all of the evils of our deplorable past. And I think that really we crossed a Rubicon in 2021 in the way in which the state used counterterrorism authorities, uh, public health authorities, obviously, uh, and all manner of other levers of power, both in the public sector and the private sector, to target, smear, and chill dissenters 
in any of these buckets. And I think that represents uh, sort of a new development in American history, a dark development in American history. But I also think it reflects uh, a, a weakness. And, and I'd be curious to hear what the group thinks about that, because I think that the necessity to not just censor people, but threaten their livelihoods, kick them off of payment processing platforms, and really try to destroy their lives. Uh, and of course, January 6th, and what has transpired in terms of the January 6th select committee and beyond, I think is a perfect representation of this. I think it speaks to the fact that they cannot tolerate any form of dissent because it's too popular with the public. It, it threatens their entire legitimacy, their, their prerogative, their agenda, and their power at the end of the day. And we see that, by the way, in this first week of 2022, where January 6th is this almost seminal focus uh, in Washington, D.C., in terms of public events and speeches, the narrative across the media, and now also that Chuck Schumer is putting forth uh, in a Dear Colleague letter where he's talked about the fact that you know, essentially there's a rolling insurrection and that's the attempt to ensure vote integrity within the states uh, is going to justify an attempt to blow up the filibuster on so-called voting rights legislation, uh, our democracy being under threat. And the New York Times itself has written an op-ed uh, on its opinion page talking about the fact that every day is an insurrection now. January 6th was not a, a one-time thing. It's every day is an insurrection. All of this hysteria the fear-mongering and the, the notion that we're operating under an emergency and every day is January 6th with a democracy under attack, in spite of the fact that the facts simply do not meet the narrative, I think speaks to a weakness of the ruling class on the fact that this is the only card they have to cling to as they try to maintain power uh, through 2022 and beyond, even up to the point of threatening, as Mark Elias, who I've alluded to before, Democrat super lawyer, has said that they may try to stop Republicans from being seated who supported the so-called insurrection on January 6th uh, by refusing to certify the presidential election results. All of this, in my view, speaks to a fundamental weakness of the ruling class, but I think also speaks to the fact that a wounded ruling class is an incredibly dangerous ruling class in 2022. And with that, I'd kind of turn it over to the, to the group. Do, do you agree with that assessment? Do you think the ruling class is operating from a point of strength? Uh, or weakness? And, and what do you think 2022 holds based upon what we've seen already in just the first few days of this year? I'm kind of curious how this narrative plays out sort of rolling into the midterms, because we're seeing this talking point be sort of seated in the mainstream press. I think even Eric Swalwell, you know, congressman from California said it on air recently, where it's like, if Republicans win any other election, it's tyranny. Right. It's it's indicative of the fact <laughs> that they've suppressed the vote and they're now going to inflict violence on the rest of us. That is very dangerous, I think, uh, for obvious reasons. Right. You are undercutting, you know, pe the people's representatives. Right. You are undercutting. You are delegitimizing a, a valid and legitimate political party in America. Um, the thing that I can't tell maybe because I'm just, I live in DC is I can't tell how much this is seeped into the rest of the country because that's the real question. If people actually start to believe this and behave that way, then, you know, I think we're in trouble, right? You see the elites spouting it from their corridors, but it's unclear to me yet if it's sunk into the base and it's actually infecting how people behave because that then I think we're, we're in sort of a, a crisis that might not be able to be reversed. So I'll just make like two very quick points here. Um, for, first, I guess to answer Ben's kind of bottom line question, like what position the ruling class is operating from as we enter the year 2022, I think it has to be fundamentally a position of immense weakness. I mean, the entire saga of COVID from day one and all the 
immense destruction and the flip-flopping and frankly, just the outright lying that Fauci, Burks, and the entire kind of public health establishment have done since day one, I think has kind of put the broader ruling class apparatus in a uniquely defensive and vulnerable position. And the onus is on kind of NACONs and people on the right in general, I think, to take advantage of that structural weakness. The only other kind of very quick point I want to make here in our, in our limited time remaining in the segment, Ben mentions kind of, um, or he alludes to kind of how the banking system and all the various parts of kind of our financial infrastructure in many ways are starting to try to kind of cut down on conservatives and cut them out of, of, of PayPal, banking, all, all stuff like that. I had a very interesting kind of coffee here yesterday in Miami with I, I I'm kind of a newbie, like a naive and kind of cryptocurrency, but this guy can only be described as like a crypto uh, influencer, I, I guess, like hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers with way, way a huge platform. And he was trying to kind of sell me that like crypto was like the main way to kind of safeguard against exactly that against conservatives getting cut out of the banking system. So not there's not time left here to kind of flesh that out meaningfully, but just kind of food for thought. Let's kind of table that for like a future segment, I guess. I'll just add, I think uh, I'll pull out the thread Rachel introduced. I think this is absolutely seeped into the population um, more broadly. Uh, and I think that's what's really scary is that we are being pitted against each other. And um, part of it is, you know, we can't underestimate on the right. Like, yes, over there's been a, some to some extent an overcorrection from 2016 the the beltway people in dc even on the right missed what was happening and now are overcorrecting i think in assuming that you know none of this seeps into the broader population and everything that happens in the coastal enclave stays in the coastal enclaves or twitter or whatever it's just not true um you know there have been years of propaganda shaping the minds of a generation um, multiple generations and that i think is starting to have a real effect on our politics so it's issue to issue of course but i think more broadly um the riots in 2020 are a great example. Um, you can make the same argument seriously about January 6th and those riots and that people have been poisoned against their government. They have been poisoned against each other. They have been told that they grew up with this idea of, the, of systemic racism poisoning their interactions with every other person. And we cannot underestimate the extent to which that is deeply ingrained in the American psyche in different ways. Um, but I think that's going forward something that it's, it's sort of a hard truth to swallow, but uh, necessary. All right. So on that note, um, speaking of hard truths to swallow, Rachel Twitter has just banned a, a very prominent flock of uh, no better word, of course, Congresswoman. So uh, what's going on with Marjorie Taylor Greene and the latest there? Yeah, I mean, speaking of absolutely crushing dissent, and I think the the right not understanding what's happening here and potentially having it backfire on them is, yes, the fact that Twitter has now, I think, well, I think this is she, they banned Marjorie Senator, or Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, which I think is the only the second time they've banned an actual sitting member of, you know, elected official, right? It was first, it was Donald Trump. Now it's Marjorie Taylor Greene. And of course, you know, in, in classic Twitter fashion, nobody actually knows why. Nobody nobody can pinpoint the offending tweet. Uh, Sagar and Jetty sort of went through her Twitter strikes and pointed to the fact that one of her strikes was for pointing out actually factual information about COVID, right? Because we know that the COVID protocols in social media absolutely make no sense, right? Things you were banned, you could be banned for a year ago, like saying cloth masks aren't effective, are now wide, you know, allowed widespread on Twitter. So, but the broader point is that, you know, Twitter has has now taken down Marjorie Taylor Greene. And there's been two interesting things for me here, and, and the first has been watching how the Republican Party has responded to this. You saw a statement put out from Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader who 
ostensibly, if things go well for Republicans in 2022, will be Speaker of the House. He managed to put out an entire statement that was a word salad full of things that never actually mentioned Marjorie Taylor Greene. <laughs> he managed to put out a whole statement that didn't mention her name. And it was sort of, you know, vagaries about tech censorship and we won't stand for it. But I think that begs the second question, which is, OK, if, if you won't stand for it, then what is your plan? Because this isn't just, you know, the silencing of the base, although that is happening very much. This is a, a, a member of the House, a duly and freely elected member of the House, controversial though she may be, and people may disagree with her left and right. She is still elected by the you know, her voters and, you know, now, is now cut off from what I would argue is one of our preeminent avenues of political discourse. Now, what's also interesting about this is, you know, Okay, what is your plan? You're starting to see trickles of that plan, uh, most recently from Congressman Dan Crenshaw, who was in this like weird Twitter feud with Marjorie Taylor Greene and put out this bill he said was in response uh, to, to what had happened to her and how and, and touted himself as, as being the responsible. And I want to read this one quote from him introducing his legislation. It says, uh, and real, it says, and real Marjorie Green referencing her Instagram handle because he did this on Instagram, which I think actually is because he doesn't want to be ratioed on Twitter. So he went after on Instagram. He said this on Sunday. He said, instead of playing the victim about censorship, maybe use your position as a legislator to help pass legislation against censorship. Luckily, I've already done all the hard work for you and drafted a bill that would change Section 230 to prohibit political censorship, end quote. So, you know, really sort of, trying to stick it to, to Marjorie Taylor Greene and saying, I'm the responsible person. Well, I went through his bill and it's actually doesn't do what he says it does, right? It's, it's yet another attempt to address Section 230 that backfires. And, and I don't want to put this all on Crenshaw because there's tons of bills that do this. Section 230 is a notoriously hard law to maneuver. Um, and you know, he his bill just falls flat. It would not prohibit political censorship under his legislation. Marjorie Taylor Greene would still be banned and the tech companies have a million ways to get around it. But why it's interesting is because it doesn't actually appear to be drafted by him. He posted a draft which contained a file path up in the left-hand corner. And anyone that's worked on Capitol Hill for like two days understands the file paths demonstrate where that legislation came from. It came from the Energy and Commerce Committee. And why that's important is because McCarthy has tasked the Energy and Commerce Committee with being this sort of censorship response team. So if this bill represents what I think it does, which is at least, you know, the sort of Republican leadership's first response or initial component response to the big tech threat, we are in trouble. And that's what I think we need to be pressing the House Republicans on, because what is your actual plan? Just to go into a majority in 2023, preparing to chest thump at hearings is not a plan for an issue that I think really is um, affecting a lot of the GOP base. The GOP base is very fired up. And I also think on that note, and the last thing I'll say is, pushing aside Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and sort of having a lukewarm effect is, is just this is Trump all over again in the sense that they all did that to Trump too. They ignored Trump. They ignored the person because they were controversial without really addressing why people were riled up about this in the first place. And I think that is potentially happening here with a big tech threat. So I'll open it up after that. So I, I, I think it was Rachel, our friend John Schweppe at American Principles Project like months and months ago because the Section 230 reform, repeal, whatever bills are kind of like a dime a dozen at this point. I mean, there's just been like so many, whether it's on the Hill or in, in, in like the think tank class. I mean, like like there's literally at this point probably been dozens of bills from right of center politicians, or right of center think tankers or whatever that have sought to try to do this. And I think it was John Schweppe who in some Substack post basically said like, 
or you know, he actually might have written, I think he actually wrote this as an op-ed for me at Newsweek. It wasn't a substack. He literally said that the one issue litmus test for how you should view the worth of the Section 230 bill is would it restore Donald Trump to Twitter? That was like his like one litmus test. It's just like try to judge the efficacy of the bill. So, uh, you know, I, I think that we can apply a, a similar prism here as well. So look, having conceded like the premise that there are like a lot of different bills here. I, one that stands out to me was kind of Marco Rubio's bill from last year. I kind of come back to that a lot. I, I, if, I, if I remember, there were a few moving parts there, but one thing is that it would do is it would kind of statutorily take the so-called Good Samaritan provision and where it's subsection C2 of the statute, if I, if I recall correctly, that's the quote unquote, otherwise objectionable language that the courts have like erroneously interpreted to kind of grant full discretionary leeway to the tech companies there. And Rubio would basically take that and replace it with like a first amendment standard. That, that strikes me as like more or less the right way to do this. But the broader point to make here is, and this is something that I think Schweppe and some of our other friends have also been pushing. The broader point is that section 230 is not gonna happen anytime soon. Like there's not gonna be any kind of legislative movement on section 230. So a lot of this debate is kind of academic. So if you actually kind of realize this is like a massive, massive problem, you have to kind of sort of think about what we could actually accomplish and in the, in the current congressional framework, especially with the hostile White House and, and DOJ and FTC, that's gonna involve some sort of bipartisan maneuvering. So the onus has to be, I think, on antitrust right now. Um, now, admittedly, that's like a less specific remedy for Twitter, which poses a less drastic antitrust problem than like a Google or a Meta or whatever we're calling that company nowadays. Um, but it does, I think, militate in in favor of alternative solutions to Section 230. And I think in, in general, we're kind of trying to get the ball back to that. It's probably the wrong path forward, at least for the near term, unless until Republicans retake the entirety of Article 1 or Article 2. I think it's interesting that um, the bill from Crenshaw is flawed because it's not as though Dan Crenshaw wrote the bill, right? It speaks to a, an infrastructure that is still in and of itself flawed and still maybe not listening to the right people and, and taking the right lessons. Um, and just to comment on the politics of it, for Crenshaw to sort of pivot and target Marjorie Taylor Greene so personally um, in a way that seems very intentional um, to, to gin up a sort of news cycle with its Crenshaw on Marjorie Taylor Greene um, is a, just a very, I, I find it an odd choice uh, from, from Dan Crenshaw, especially when he's not armed with like a really killer piece of legislation. Um, it's just, it, it's bizarre. I do think Rachel wrote this morning, um, we're taping this on Tuesday, Rachel wrote in Bright, which is the Federalists women-centric newsletter uh, that, uh, you know, you may not have even known that Marjorie Taylor Greene apologized for the QAnon stuff. And Rachel wrote about that when it happened, but it was this like really long, interesting, self-reflective apology. And it's just, it, she she's become this target. And I think the way that she's become a target really speaks to how eager some people on the right are, how much more eager they are to sort of do the Buckley purging Birchards thing than focus on substance. And you absolutely do that at the expense of the other. Not always, but you can do that one at the expense of the other. Um, and I think on, on this issue in particular, it's unfortunate that we're not more focused on on one than the other and and meanwhile somebody like crenshaw is sort of parading himself around as an authority of a conservative authority and everyone who uh, disagrees with him gets you know subjected to weird personal attacks 
Yeah, and of course, this isn't the first time that uh, Crenshaw, not to pick on him, but uh, has gone after, you know, essentially so-called fake kind of conservatives, you know, who uh, he claims and others have claimed are kind of big talk, no action, you know, voted against Trump on certain things, et cetera, even when there were perfectly legitimate reasons to not go along with whatever uh, the policy in question was. And I think there's something, first of all, it's worth stating Think about the contrast in terms of how the Democrat establishment treats squad members versus how Republicans treat Freedom Caucus members and then folks like MTG. I think it's really interesting to see where the establishments within the party see the power as residing and and also what they're comfortable tolerating. Um, And I think what it kind of shows, and this extends beyond just, you know, the, let's say at very best, lukewarm support. Um, for challenging big tech over the fact that they would censor one of the members of their caucus. Um, They're kind of one and the same in terms of the keeping at an arm's length, those figures within the party who really rally the base, uh, but showing that the establishment really doesn't like its base very much. And then also the sort of sabotage Republican kind of fake, tepid, lukewarm effort to challenge Section 230 and, and challenge the censorship of the big tech companies. I think it's it's one and the same. It's an uncomfortability really with the base of the party and who that base's representatives are. And then it's also an uncomfortability with actually defending and protecting that base against censorship as well. So I think that the two issues are interlinked and also sort of points to, you know, what I think is kind of running running theme here, which is that with the ruling class, it's not really a partisan thing at the end of the day. Yes, there's ideological unanimity among the ruling class, but it's also a cultural and aesthetic sort of cabal that exists. And anyone who dares threaten in any way from a Trump to an MTG has to be targeted and destroyed ultimately. All right, so let's uh, let's transition on that note over to Emily for the latest on uh, what I guess is a series of segments we've done on podcast now recently in kind of political economy and economics. So uh, Emily, what's going on with PPE and supply chains? I come bearing good news for once. Uh, this is this is genuinely very good news. It's also sort of bizarre news. Of all people, former MSNBC host Dylan Radigan has has opened and is operating a factory outside of Chicago in a former Caterpillar plant to manufacture gloves, PPE gloves, in the United States. And he is his work was highlighted in a CNN article, actually a really helpful CNN article. And Radigan, this is a quote from CNN, quote, insists he can compete on price while following US laws and running a workplace ethically. Radigan says, the reason that I can do this is because the technology allows me to do it in a way that I can compete with even the dirtiest user of slave labor. And indeed, um, Malaysia was formerly the biggest, according to this article, the biggest supplier of gloves in the United States, PPE gloves in the United States, and there had been using forced labor, um, allegedly had been using forced labor, and that had to be distanced um, for the United States, had to, had to distance themselves from that particular company um, and from the forced labor. And so you're in a pandemic, and suddenly we realize all of these drugs are manufactured in China. All of this PPE is manufactured in other parts of Asia. All of our supply chains are so unstable. What are we going to do about it? And instead of spending, you know, time continuing to sort of bellyache and pontificate, Dylan Radigan, former MSNBC host Dylan Radigan, has opened a factory where he is using innovative technology to compete on prices. 
Um, and that to me is a sign clearly, and there's still an experiment to be played out. He has a big contract with the federal government to supply um, his gloves. But this is this experiment, which seems to be going well, um, is a huge sign that if he can do it, other corporations can do it. Other entrepreneurs can do it. They can, if they can compete on price um, and even just be competitive, there is a demand for American-made made products. Um, there, are, there are things our federal government can do to make that more cost-effective uh, because we're already doing it for the people who are manufacturing in China and elsewhere. So there are there are things that can be done to, this isn't just about our supply chains. This is about um, our stability. This is about um, American jobs. Think of all the Americans that Radigan is employing um, and he says doing so ethically and the signs seem to be that that's what's happening right here in the United States, outside of Chicago at a former Caterpillar plant. So this story is uh, just one. There are other, the, the article mentions a, a factory in Buffalo that's doing something similar. Um, they don't have any federal contracts yet, but uh, they are mentioned as they're making these gloves. But the story is, is one example, um, but I thought it was worth us discussing because I do think it undercuts the corporate narrative that the corporate and libertarian narrative that we need, we still need to allow these plants to go in China and maybe they should be allowed, that's a different question, but like that this is essential, offshoring all of this stuff is essential to prosperity. Um, this story is really interesting. And so I guess I'm, I'm curious to know because this has big consequences for our policy, our domestic policy and our foreign policy, if experiments like this start working and it shows other entrepreneurs, they can do it here. I'm curious if you guys see this case study as instructive as I do. Yeah, I think it's a big story for the exactly for the reason you highlighted, because it, it undermines the narrative that we've been told for decades at this point, the, the narrative that under, you know, that sold NAFTA, the narrative that sold globalization and, you know, may have been right at some point in time, right, which is this idea that like, oh, we can only do, you know, goods cheaper. Globalization has saved us all this money. You know, just going to China is, is why you can afford anything, right? Any consumer good in America. And that's just obviously facially not true. Again, maybe it was true at one point. It's not true now. And I think the more you see stories like this, the harder it's going to be for these corporations in particular to come up with their excuses. And they'll have no excuse at that point not to bring some you know, critical supply chains home to make some of this stuff here to employ American workers when they're doing it, to pay them well. Now, I will have questions if they bring you know, all these factories home and then import a bunch of H-1B workers and fire the Americans, right? Like there's layers to this story. But I think this is a hugely encouraging development. And I, I hope it's broadcast and put in the face of corporations who are still in China. Apple, I'm looking at you, you know, to shame them to come back here and, and make their goods in, in, in America and hire American workers. It can be done. So I, I guess to kind of like zoom out a little here and set the scene a little bit here. So look, free trade for decades and decades um, as kind of like an economic theory uh, has been pushed largely by kind of the economic profession for a very simple reason, which is that you kind of take like the traditional Keynesian formula, like the, like the actual equation as to what constitutes gross domestic product. Consumption is like a huge proponent, it's a, it's a huge portion of that. Um, consumption, I, if I'm not mistaken, consumption is roughly like 65 to 70% of GDP. It, it's like grotesquely high over the past 20, 30 years in America. And free trade does obviously, in theory, on economic chalkboard, result in kind of the lowest prices for consumers here. 
The fundamental problem, of course, um, is that kind of uh, the nation state, the national interest, the common good, the common wheel, we the people, all that good stuff is not simply coextensive, is not simply synonymous with maximizing GDP. I mean, these two things are simply not the same thing here. I mean, we've, we've done many kind of podcast segments on this year, but to take kind of like one very, I, I think, easy to illustrate example, you know, in California, the proliferation of the pornography industry in San Fernando Valley technically will boost California state GDP. It is manifestly contrary, of course, to any kind of basic norms of, of, of good governance, virtue, uh, state interest of California, and obviously the common good itself here. So, you know, look, uh, Marco Rubio, I think, is quite well-spoken on this recently. I mean, what, the line that Rubio has been taking over the past six months to a year, year and a half, maybe or so, is he basically says, look, I am for the market here, but when the market's interests, and here we define the market in kind of this kind of like overly theorized kind of maximized consumption, lower prices at all costs kind of way, when the market is kind of in conflict with the national interest, I'm going to choose the latter. And it kind of reminds me of an essay that our Edinburgh Foundation David, uh, colleague David Brog wrote for American Affairs about a year ago or so, where he was talking about um, the relationship between Edmund Burke and Adam Smith, kind of like the godfather of kind of, you know, modern kind of uh, neoclassical economics, if you will. And to kind of paraphrase, paraphrase excuse me, what David wrote on that essay, he said, you know, Edmund Burke was, was an admirer of Adam Smith's, but when it, be, when it came time to choose between the wealth of nations and the wealth of his nation, he chose the latter. Um, and I think that is kind of like this kind of like renewed zeal, this like renewed energy for kind of industrial policy here. That, that's been happening on the right here. And look, COVID obviously like shocked people into consciousness in that respect, obviously. I mean, we all remember kind of the early days of COVID when China was hoarding our PPE to say nothing, obviously, of the pharmaceutical products themselves here. So COVID really should have been like an eye-opening moment, I think, for a lot of people as far as getting back to bread, bread and butter basics as far as political economy. So um, I think this story fits very neatly into that kind of longer running the past two years narrative. And it's it's definitely something to be very encouraged about. So Emily, I definitely appreciate uh, the white pill. Yeah, I'm hardened by the story as well. Um, I would love if there were no government contract component of it, because that's also going to be a real test. Like, can companies actually function in an economically sustainable way coming back here uh, without getting either subsidies or contracts or the like, but I assume there are going to have to be certainly incentives uh, to to push companies back here because the national interest clearly doesn't matter to the vast majority of corporations in this country, um, to their great shame. Uh, but I, I do think um, it's worth kind of underlining the point that that Josh made, which is you know, he said basically when or you were kind of paraphrasing the kind of Marco Rubio argument about you know when the national interest conflicts with uh, lowest price, cheapest goods, uh, biggest quantity of them, the national interest has to trump uh, trump price. And I, and I think the way that I would describe it is the lowest price at what cost? And there are myriad costs in terms of, like Josh noted, like what is the substance or the content of the actual economic activity that exists in a country? Like, does it actually destroy and corrode your national soul? Uh, but then there's also, you know, what I always go back to my hobby horse of, okay, lowest price, but then you've empowered your greatest foreign adversary that wishes to absolutely dominate you and use all your financial markets, uh, your capital, your technology and know-how and beyond all of those assets that you've developed against us in communist China. And I think that makes it so that it's not only the a politically powerful argument, but it's also the right thing to do to have a whole slew of policies aimed 
at onshoring every strategically significant industry and beyond, and even pulling so-called non-significant industries, particularly out of China, because it is a national imperative. It's existential. Uh, so examples like this are great. Uh, I hope that there are more widespread examples. If shaming corporations doesn't work, um, you know, perhaps these kind of PR efforts associated will, but I think ultimately it is going to come down to law. And that also requires politicians who themselves are not addicted to essentially the China first agenda. And we're still yet to get that uh, kind of class of representatives. But certainly, I think the American people are far further along than their purported representatives. Okay, so let's uh, let's transition over to, to myself here, I guess, to kind of close out our, our four segments. So we're going to finish on a bit of foreign policy. So I, 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 I guess what I want to talk about here is I, I've had now like kind of like a series of kind of conversations, just kind of like private, like casual, like lunch, drinks, whatever conversations but with like young activists, kind of very online conservatives. And there seems to be kind of like a recurring trend now that a lot of us are just having like an increasingly hard time getting riled up about, about the details of foreign policy. Right? I think we have a hard time kind of forcing ourselves to care about like what's going to happen on like the Russia-Ukraine border, for example, where, you know, like critical race theory, woke indoctrination is proliferating throughout the body politic, where, you know, conservatives are being kicked off their, our modern day public square, Twitter and all of that. So I had like one lunch here down in Florida a couple of weeks ago where we kind of talked about this. And then like, I guess it was Saturday night. Um, it, was, it was it was Christmas night. Uh, so December 25th, I got dinner with like three or four Kind of conservative activist friends down here um, in Florida, and we we kind of independently arrived at that at that exact same point. So, the day after Christmas, I tweeted out. I said, "Quote: A recurring theme of some recent conversations with conservative friends. I am. We are having an increasingly hard time caring about U.S. foreign policy. There is simply so much domestic rot right now that the focus must be on getting our own house in order. Period." Um, and then, and then Lee Smith, who you know uh, is one of, I think one of the most incisive, brilliant minds out there as far as all things kind of national security, foreign policy related, quote tweeted me and did like a short little thread. And he said, "quote Biden slash Obama team is actively or effectively partnered with U.S. external adversaries, China, Russia, Iran. Biden has signaled that not only externally but internally as well by undermining combat forces, by calling combat troops white supremacists." or vaccine mandates. And here's, here's the key point that Lee said. Lee says, quote, it is impossible to have a relevant foreign policy when ruling power indicates that it only has a domestic policy of targeting pro, the pro-American party, which of course is the Republican party, the right. This kind of gets back to what Angela Cotavilla has written about at great length about kind of the imperative to ultimately kind of reform or outright abolish the intelligence community apparatuses here. So a lot of moving parts here, but Lee there was kind of really kind of getting at, and I'll, I'll just name one of the names, I guess. I, my, my good friend, Joran Schachtel, basically said exactly what Lee Smith said at that dinner that I mentioned down here in South Florida. Like, how can you have a foreign policy when the interest between the people that are actually weaponizing levers of power to effectuate that foreign policy and the intelligence community at, at, at DOD, the Pentagon, the State Department, the National Security Council, all the way up, just have fundamentally different interests um, than, than we the people kind of here, the, the so-called deplorables and whatnot here. So, but, but, but even holding aside the, I think the difficulty of actually articulating what a genuine foreign policy is that has the true national interest in such a way that would be feasible to implement to get over all that kind of bureaucratic and sclerotic rot, even kind of holding that aside here, I, I think kind of the first point that I made really does kind of stand is that America is like really crumbling. And like, I hate to sound so pessimistic and obviously it is, it is our job to kind of try to put out a forceful positive agenda to rebuild that here. 
But, you know, I mean, we're at the point now, I mean, like the memes of kind of like, you know, like the rainbow flag being raised in Kabul, I mean, like kind of who are we to kind of dictate the terms of, of the global order when we are crumbling from within, when we have people that are elected to our publicitary body to, to the U.S. Congress, the Illinois Mars world, to hate America, who say how terrible we are, systemically racist we are when we're spreading, um, to kind of use kind of the crude term, the, you know, the quote unquote global homo agenda, if I can kind of use a, a, a very online Twitter term here. It, it, it really does kind of augur in favor, I think, of a humility about what the U.S.'s role on the world stage should be. And that obviously does not mean that we have to go kind of where some of, um, you know, the Catholic integralists, for lack of a better term, go, which is kind of like all out CCP kind of China standing. That obviously does not mean we want to go there. But I think it does definitely kind of cut in favor of at a bare minimum, a humility as far as kind of what the US role should be vis-a-vis -vis a possible Putin invasion of Ukraine or a possible Xi invasion of Taiwan. Uh, you know, Michael Anton had a long essay recently basically kind of forcefully arguing exactly what he argued at, at Ben's uh, NACON uh, conference, that the US should not kind of go to war over Taiwan if push comes to shove, she does decide to invade there. So I, I don't know, a lot of moving parts of this conversation here, I, I guess I can kind of just kick it open to everyone's thoughts on that note. But I, 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 I get like the two key points from my perspective are one, we are crumbling so much from within is it truly possible to walk and chew gum at the same time when there is so much internal and institutional rot? And two, what does a coherent, quote unquote, foreign policy, again, even mean when the interests seem so perversely not aligned between the people that are actually implementing that foreign policy and the actual people themselves? So, um, Ben, maybe you want to kick us off there. Yeah, I mean, I sort of where I've landed on this question, and I've, I think I've probably said this before on the show, you know, I hope that we get around to dealing with the myriad threats that we face from abroad, uh, led by the number one threat, communist China. But to the extent we're engaged in a cold, our ruling class is engaged in a cold civil war at home against non-progressive normal Americans. And it's not only engaged in a cold civil war against us, but at the same time, uh, effectively not only emulating, but also in many ways, aiding, abetting, and enabling the worst adversary engaged in a hot war by other means abroad against us and the rest of the free world, China, how could we possibly expect to ultimately triumph in a situation like that? Why would we ever expect that a ruling class would pursue our adversaries and defend America's interests when they find America to be a uniquely deplorable and evil country? So. I've always felt that we have the capability to, and, and not just in a cliche way, but we truly do have the capability to overcome any foreign adversary, but not to the extent that half of America is perceived as the greatest adversary uh, and all of the levels of, of power, levers of power, and particularly our national security, intelligence, and law enforcement apparatus are targeting the very people who, by the way, would fight and die to defend the country against those foreign adversaries. So. You know, I think it's sort of, we have myriad problems that we are facing from abroad. Uh, we have a greater adversary in communist China than I believe we faced in the Soviet Union by any number of metrics that can be demonstrated, plus a ruling class that is far worse in terms of defending America against that adversary than we had against the Soviet Union, which isn't to say, of course, that there weren't useful idiots and dupes uh, and worse during that struggle as well, but it's far worse today, uh, in my view, because China is here. I mean, we're integrated with them in so many different ways. We're compromised to the nth degree. Uh, but I do think that the point is well taken 
that we have major problems here. I mean, if we don't believe in the principles and the values that our country is based on, if we don't believe, if, if the national interest is essentially repudiating the national interest, then we have no chance of dealing with any of those problems from abroad. And that's before you get into the wokeism that's corrupted every single institution, including the ones that are supposed to defend this country, our military readiness, uh, the hollowing out of our capabilities in many respects, as we talked about before, all of these strategically significant industries uh, that essentially have supply chain components that are abroad, which make us sitting ducks. I mean, we have all manner of problems that we face from the foreign policy side. But if we don't have our own internal house in order, we have no chance of grappling with them, period, full stop. I agree with that. I think it, it's, it's um, I do think that to Josh's point, it's extremely difficult to walk and chew gum at the same time these days. On the same side, I also don't think we have an option because of globalization and that if we sort of seed um, our leadership, and I also agree with Josh that we, we, we sort of, it's harder to make the case for American leadership in some respects these days. Um, but if we do seed our position, which we still have a claim to, I think, as the freest people that has ever existed, as difficult as it may be to uh, think about that, uh, because we're so rapidly, I think, losing our way of life. But if we seed that, uh, China, takes, China takes it from us. And I do see it really as an either or. Um, and I don't think we want to live in that world because it will affect us no matter what we, no matter what we want, it will still have an effect on us. We can't just sort of be, uh, prosperous and have the Dylan Radigan companies and everything be great. Um, if China is at the front of the, the world, uh, stage, because they will make sure that we, we still suffer, even if we're, uh, much less powerful and, um, innocuous. It's so, I, I don't think that we, we particularly have a choice the question just becomes to what extent can we do one at the same time as we're doing the other and to what extent are these issues intertwined uh, my boss ben dominich had a great monologue on fox news last week about how the the internal fight against our cultural strife and the external threat of china are actually intertwined in some important ways and i think recognizing that overlap is really a good place to start yeah, I think the the intertwinement of the issue is critical because, you know, I think there's an elite class, the foreign policy blob that will make the distinction, right, that they will just try to say no, you know, foreign policy is simply just us wandering around like fixing the world's problems but in reality the world that we live in now our economic policy is in many ways foreign policy you know our domestic policies dealing with covid are in many ways foreign policy um you know our immigration policies are foreign policy so i do think it ties very neatly into some of the domestic issues that we're dealing with and and i think some of the things that make us fraught about this moment have a foreign policy angle that we cannot ignore so i you know i i pure foreign policy on its face, like should, you know, should we, you know, leave troops in Afghanistan or, you know, should we intervene in whatever said country? I think we're exhausted by that question. And I think when you have so many threats and issues at home, that's, we can't focus there. But I do think ignoring the fact that all of our policies have to reflect, again, a push for American sovereignty and what that looks like, that's a critical foreign policy element that I think everybody can agree on. So on that note, uh, let's transition to final closing thoughts here. So who wants to who wants to kick us off? <laughs> We're still brain drained from Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think kind of just going back to 
I think the discussion that Ben kicked us off with, which is this idea that, you know, all of these issues that we're talking about, this, you know, focus on sort of our, the threats to our sovereignty, you know, my issues about, you know, big tech, can we build a domestic PPE industry, you know, or domestic supply chains, all of them, sorry, are sort of downstream from this. They, they won't, they will matter very little if we cannot get our politics right, because we can't solve these problems without our politics actually working. And what we're seeing, I think right now is an attack, you know, led by Democrats, partisan Democrats, but also, you know, I think an elite class in America that is is trying to divide us, but also say, you know, not just you're worthless and you're a bunch of rubes, but you're criminals too. And when you add that aspect, I think, you know, we are in a dangerous position of actually having democracy under assault, right? We constantly see this headline about January 6th and, you know, anything Republicans do is a threat to democracy. Well, no, the actual threat to democracy is when you attack the people who make it up. And that's what's happening here. And so I do think that before we can get anything else right, we have to get that right. And that's where I think, you know, the lingering unknown question is, can we even do that? I'll just close with a really specific final thought, and that's TikTok. Um, when we have this conversation about our culture and our military foreign policy to China, um, there's like basically psychological warfare from China on every kid's phone in America right now. And we have evidence that it's spiking mental illness and that it's making a less healthy, a much less healthy um, and less secure society. And so I think when we look at like the Dylan Radigan example, we look at all these things. I think we're in an adjustment process and I'll uh, sort of with respect to Yoram say this is this is good we will end on a good note right now that like it is entirely possible we are we have reason to be optimistic because as painful as things are now there is evidence there's London breed um you know saying calling bs on the policies that she supported in san francisco um there's the left suddenly after they all get omicron deciding that we can flip on all the COVID things it's fresh frustrating, it's maddening, it's hypocritical, it's all of those things, but it's ultimately good. Um, and and so it's there's a question of whether it's too late that I think is fair. Um, but I really do think uh, people are waking up to sort of the, the, the threats to our culture that are coming from other people who want to do us harm. I think the Olympics are going to be a big test to see how the media handles um, the, the Beijing Olympics, which are essentially a big propaganda event for China. Um, but, you know, I guess my final my final thought is, you know, we, we have things like TikTok, but people are, I think, waking up to the latent threat that they pose. So since you mentioned uh, Emily, the kind of flip-flopping on the policies, which is maddening, but of course actually illustrates just like the fact that we now know uh, that there was a concerted effort to go after the Great Barrington Declaration authors that every single aspect of coronavirus has not been about public health, but has purely been about politics and power at the end of the day from our establishment's perspective. And also, yeah, the flip-flopping on, you know, kind of defund the police and the like. The, the Democrats on the ruling class more broadly are kind of caught between a rock and a hard place between wanting to usurp maximum power on the one hand, but feeling the political pressures of the fact that their whole agenda is crumbling and you simply can't hide it. I mean, there's a reason that in week one of this year, and it seems like probably for months thereafter, Democrats are going to focus on January 6th because they can't talk about inflation or foreign policy or supply chain issues, or the myriad other failures. Obviously, the fact that no matter what they do with the coronavirus policies, uh, they haven't beaten the virus. 
so-called and beyond. So I think they're caught between, on the one hand, the political kind of existential imperative to change their policies because there's bloodletting, which was seen in some of these 2021 races on the one hand. And then on the other hand, the fact that they, they want to usurp maximum power and control over all of our lives. And I think it's the job of, of all of us to make sure uh, that Democrats continue to deal with that dilemma uh, and ultimately fail in their ability to deal with that dilemma between the, the wanting to usurp power on the one hand, but recognizing that the more they try to usurp power, the more their agenda crumbles and they can't hide it. So Emily's mention of TikTok actually kind of brought back to my mind what I really want to talk about here, which is kind of a sad little story. Um, Ted, Ted Cruz's older daughter, Caroline Cruz, has recently been in, in, in some hot water over kind of a TikTok video and some comments that she left kind of um, talking about difficulties um, that, that, that she has dealt with kind of in her personal life, being the, the daughter of a, of a very prominent conservative here. Um, I, I, I re this is really not something I should, I, I should be getting into, but kind of like, it's very difficult to kind of read what she said and kind of the comments that she left there. And then you, and, and then you, you can also look at kind of the Christmas card that the official Cruz campaign sent out there where um, she, uh, Caroline is pointedly not smiling. And then in the TikTok context, she was, she said how like they, um, she, or she alleges, I, I don't know if it's true, she alleges that they kind of photoshopped her crop top uh, to kind of better conform to Senator Cruz's, uh, you know, social conservatism. Um, it, it's not particularly good stuff. Um, it, it, you know, it, it, it does point to, to some kind of more fundamental issues, perhaps. And I, I, don't, I don't say that um, with any degree of happiness, obviously, as someone who's known Senator Cruz for years, I worked on his book last year, obviously. But the kind of broader point that I want to make here um, is that it does kind of shine a spotlight on the difficulties of being associated with a very prominent conservative um, in America today here. And I kind of look at that in the broader kind of context there. I kind of think back, obviously, to the infamously horrific Brett Kavanaugh nomination. And one of the longer running kind of, you know, perverse incentives that I think kind of emanates from the Kavanaugh nomination saga is that it is going to dissuade or disincentivize good people from kind of putting themselves out there for Article Three judgeships, for, you know, prominence kind of, um, you know, Article Two captain positions here. And you know, I, I, I guess I view them as two sides of the same coin. I mean, like for people that might consider even now running for perhaps even like elected political office there. I mean, if you see a situation like this, where there's clearly kind of been like a toll on the family, which as you know, as conservatives, we obviously rightfully prioritize as kind of the bedrock of the most fundamental and the most valuable unit of all. Um, it's very hard to kind of take away a, a positive message from that. You, you kind of have to conclude that it might kind of uh, perverse disincentivize good people from running for office as well there. So um, I, I don't want to say, it, 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 it's kind of a morbid subject. I don't want to spend much more time on, honestly, but I just, you know, I, I'm praying for the Cruz family. Obviously, I hope that obviously that they are able to kind of figure this out. I, I obviously wish Ted and his whole family nothing but the absolute best here, but um, I started at such like a morbid topic. I feel like we've had a, a, some some white pill. So thanks to Emily for that earlier. But we have had a very well-rounded show. We are very excited to be back with you guys in the year 2022. So we're wishing you a fabulous 2022. Hopefully it's better than the crap hole year that was 2021. We have midterm elections later this year that we're very excited to, among other things. So on behalf of Ben, Emily, and Rachel, I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back to NACCON Squad, and we will see you next week.